You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 11 verse 55, let us hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the word that you have given to us, that you have preserved for us. We each have the blessing of owning multiple copies of your word. Well, Father, what a true treasure chest it is, oh, Father. And as we come to your word this morning, Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to teach us your word and open your word to our hearts, as we often say. And The other necessity of that is to open uh, our hearts to your word. Well, Father, do this work, we ask, and not only teach us these things, but apply these things, O Father. Apply them in such a way that, Father, you would work in our hearts to align our lives with these truths that we find, these beautiful things that we find, these glorious doctrines. But most importantly, Lord, it's in your word that we see who you are, what you're like. So, Father, do this work, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning we conclude chapter 11 and begin a new chapter. And you'll notice in verse 55 there that we have a reference to the Passover again. Now, depending on our accounting, this is either the third Passover or the fourth Passover. It's uh, something that's debated, and the nature of the debate really stems from chapter 5, verse 1 where uh, we simply have the words, the feast, or a feast of the Jews was at hand. We don't know, we can't say for sure whether that feast was a Passover or perhaps Pentecost, we don't know. If, if this is the third Passover, then Jesus' ministry is probably about two and a half years in length. If this is the fourth Passover, then his ministry is over three years, about three and a half years of length. That's not um, really so very important. Um, But what is really important is as John has been bringing up these feasts, 
He's been, he's been juxtaposing these feasts with theological significance. We've seen this over and over again. We've seen this with the other references uh, to the Passover. We've seen this more recently to references uh, to the Feast of Booths. And here we are again at the Feast of the Passover. Now, what, what theological significance would be associated with this Passover? Well, whether we take it to be the third or fourth is, doesn't really matter. Um, the association, the theological association with this Passover is that Jesus is indeed the sacrifice of this Passover. He indeed is the Lamb uh, who will, uh, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of us all. Uh, and that is the theological significance of this. And uh, here we see that the time has now come. And as we come to the uh, final verses of chapter 12, we will be completing, uh, really for all practical purposes, uh, the first half of John's gospel, which um, is Jesus' public ministry proper, if you will. And what is amazing is, as we go into chapter 13 and the rest of the gospel, it focuses really largely on just the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, it focuses on his, uh, on his passion. And uh, here we're told in verse 55, because the Passover was at hand, we're told that many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, the Passover was one of those feasts where all Jewish males were required to come into Jerusalem. And, uh, the, the, you know, as, as we're developing the context here, we could find ourselves uh, really with an application already. We have, you know, our services begin with a call to worship. What is the call to worship? It's, a, it's the call from God to all of his people to, to come together and to join uh, our hearts in worship. And uh, unfortunately, um, we find that that's one of the least obeyed commandments that God extends to his church. And uh, that's uh, unfortunate. Here we see that these, um, uh, these folks are indeed traveling. Um, many miles, many of them are traveling uh, to attend to the Passover. And notice that they're coming in early that they might purify themselves. Um, the whole idea of that was that they might come and observe various washings, uh, purification ceremonies, that they might be purified so that they are prepared uh, for the Passover. And uh, again, we could make application of this. I think we must before we move on. As we come to the gospel Passover this morning, and what would the gospel Passover be? Again, that's old language uh, gospel Passover. If you read old, uh, old preaching and you read old books like I do, uh, you'll come across these phrases. The gospel Passover is the Lord's Supper. The gospel Passover uh, is communion. And we come to communion this morning. And one of the things that we do every time we observe communion is we purify ourselves before we come to the table. And someone will say, wait a second, how do we purify ourselves? Well, uh, we don't uh, step before a battery of, of washings, uh, but instead, what do we do? We confess our sins as a church, don't we? And, and listen, listen I, I, will, I will say this again before the morning is over, but in 1 John 1, 9, which uh, I, I cite every time we're coming to the table, that if we confess our sins... To God, He is righteous and just to forgive us our sins, 
but also to what? To cleanse us or to purify us from all unrighteousness. So as these pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem in order to purify themselves, they're observing these basic rites, if you will, that all point to Jesus and they all point to the cleansing blood of Christ Jesus. In other words, when I say cleansing blood, I, I mean his cleansing death. I mean his death upon the cross, which takes away the sins of all who trust in him. And as we confess it, and we can come in here on a Sunday morning and we can be loaded with guilt. And sometimes that is our, sometimes that is the case. And it could be something as significant as dysfunction in the family. It could be something as, as something as a fight that went on in this morning. Who gets the bathroom? We come in here with guilt over all kinds of things, don't we? Um, when we confess this before the Lord, uh, let us be mindful. He purifies us from this. Um, so these pilgrims are coming in to be purified. They're coming to be purified so that they'll be cleansed for the Passover. In verse 56, they're looking for Jesus. Some, some translations, the New American Standard, and even a footnote, um, you'll look, if you have an ESV open, you'll see there's a footnote. Uh, it says seeking. Some were seeking for. That's because the word can be translated either way. They're seeking Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. Um, again, we could put probably three constructions on this, maybe more if we want to. I'll limit it to three. What exactly are they doing? Well, they're saying to one another, is Jesus going to show up at this thing or not? Is basically what they're saying. Now, the best construction we could put on this, and I think this construction is valid, especially with verse 9 and, and uh, verse 9, you know, when the large crowds learned that Jesus uh, was there, they, they came out to see him. Uh, I think there probably were some, people are always a mixed community today. Everybody, you know, today leaders are trying to take all these people groups and they're trying to make them into, you know, into these clear-cut little sections. You know, all Christians are the same. All Jews are the same. Oh, well, we know better than that. Would anybody here this morning think all Christians are the same? Do we believe all the same stuff? Do we have all the same political ideologies? What is the General Assembly of the PCA all about if we're all the same? Hardly. And I think as we come to these things, I don't know that I think sometimes as we try to make them real black and white, I think this is a mixed group we have here. I think it's always a mixed group. There's probably some who simply want to see the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. There may even be some who's heard so many things about Jesus, they just want to lay their eyes on him. I think that's probably some of it. There's others that are probably caught up in controversy. You know how much the sinful heart loves a controversy. The news counts on that love all the time, every night. Any night, any day of the week, it, it will go without fail. Sinful hearts love that controversy. What's going to happen next? You know, is there going to be another crash? That's why people come to the races to see the wrecks. Now, it's not the only reason they come, I mean, but it is one of the reasons they come. Um, uh, but I think in large part, verse 57 guides us here in a third construction, and that's the most sinner, the sinister. They're looking to Jesus. Uh, they're looking to his arrest. If you look at verse 57, at this point, the chief priests and Pharisees have given outward orders that if anyone knew where he was, that they should let them know so that they might arrest him. So at this point, uh, aiding and abetting Jesus would be harboring, harboring a, uh, um, a wanted person at this point. Uh, 
And that's probably, that could very well be the bulk of what's happening here in verses 56 and 57. Now that sets up the context of chapter 12 and verse 1. There we see another reference to the Passover. You see the six days before the Passover. Here we are. We're in the last week now, the very last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're told that Jesus comes to Bethany. That's the home of Lazarus uh, or the hometown of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus is there. And they, in verse 2, they give a dinner for him there. Martha is serving. Lazarus uh, was one of those who was reclining, if you will, at the table. And then verse 3. In verse 3, we have an act of devotion that is astounding. It's, a, it's an act of devotion that, that really um, stands out amongst um, the many acts of devotion that we find in the New Testament. Uh, here we see Mary takes an expensive perfume or ointment, if you will, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. She wipes his feet with her hair. And we're told that the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, for most of the morning, I want to focus on this uh, great act of devotion. Before we get into it, let me just say these things. Uh, we have a story like this told uh, several times in the New Testament. And if you go to, you don't need to turn there, but if you go to Matthew 26, you'll find a story told uh, like this. If you go to Mark 14, you'll find a story like this. Uh, I, I'm of the persuasion that Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and John 12 are all the same story. Uh, but if you go to Luke chapter 7, and you don't need to turn there, there's a story of a woman who also um, anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And I think that's a different story. The circumstances surrounding that story have uh, a lot of uh, dissimilarity uh, with this story. So I think it's a different story. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, most people, I think, are agreed on that. But the story we have in, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and here in John uh, are one and the same, where we're given uh, the story from a couple of different uh, angles, if you will. Now, uh, concerning the act of devotion that we have here itself, um, the first thing I really want to point out about this is, you know, let's just ask the question, what has uh, motivated Mary to do this? And the answer to that question is with the word therefore. Notice the word therefore in verse 3. I think most of us will have that word. I don't know if the NIV has. The NIV have the word therefore. I don't remember. Uh, but that word therefore, it's in the Greek, un, it is such an important word to this verse. Uh, it's, it's a very important word to this verse and, uh, because it's pointing to the why. It points to the why. It points to what is motivating Mary to do this. Now, what is motivating Mary? Let's just start with the context. Okay, there's a dinner. There's a dinner there in honor of Jesus. Why is Jesus being honored? Well, we could go on the rest of the day about that, couldn't we? But let's be specific. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead, hasn't he? He has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And I don't think we should stop right there. 
because I think that really as we find this word, therefore, Mary, therefore, Jesus is at the dinner. Jesus is being honored at the dinner. There is a celebration in the name of Jesus. Mary, therefore, because of all of this. Why is Jesus being so celebrated by Mary? Well, because Jesus has come into Mary's life, hasn't he? He's come into her life. And not only has he come into her life, you know, she has sat at his feet, you know. In, in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 10, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in his teaching, hanging on to his teaching, hanging on to his work. Not only has he come into her, uh, into her life, he has made a profound impact with his teaching in her heart, so much so that, that she, uh, she sits at his feet, hanging on to every word that he speaks. And furthermore, Jesus has raised her brother from the dead. Now, that, that would have an impact on us, wouldn't it? It would have a significant impact on us. And we've talked a lot about that over the last couple of weeks. But one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that Jesus hasn't just raised Lazarus from the dead. He has also raised Mary and Martha from the dead. And so I said, well, I never heard of Martha and Mary being ill. Well, Martha and Mary have become believers. If you look back to chapter 11, verse 27, I've made a lot of noise about this profession of faith that Martha professes, and it is extraordinary. In the Gospels themselves, it's, it's, it's unequal to save the centurion or Peter. Um, she says, I believe you are the Christ, speaking to Jesus. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, when Peter makes his confession, what does Jesus say to Peter? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. This work of saving faith, this work of coming in to the heart, um, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul makes it really clear in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, that he, he is in the business of taking a dead spiritual, or a spiritually dead heart and transforming it into a living, spiritually living heart. Mary has been transformed from being spiritually dead to being a dead woman walking to now a spiritually alive woman. And furthermore, so has her sister Martha. Now, that certainly intensifies things, doesn't it? It's joyous when the Lord comes into our lives. It's joyous when he makes a profound impact on our hearts with his word. And it's super joyous when he transforms our hearts savingly to be his. How much more when he does the same thing to our family members? That's wonderful, isn't it? Isn't that something we pray for? It, well, I don't think we forget. I forget a lot of things, but I don't think I forget that very often, to pray for our, our family members who are unsaved. Is there anybody in the room who would say, you know, my, my family's 100% in Christ? I think sometimes the pain of that, we have to push that back, don't we? That's painful, isn't it? We have, to push that, we have to push that back because the reality of that is so painful. And we ask the Lord to do this, come into their lives like he came into Mary's life, come into, 
Come in and teach them. Raise them from the dead. Now, these are the things that I would submit to you are motivating Mary to take this pound of expensive ointment and pour it out on his feet. And it's what I want to call this morning gospel motivation. In other words, Mary is not being motivated by external means. That's not gospel motivation. You know, Mary is not being motivated from the outside in. She's not being motivated by various penances and by various duties and by various things uh, that Mary should be doing. You know, it's your duty, Mary, to take this uh, uh, ointment and, you know, put it on. No, this isn't no legalistic piety that, that Mary is enjoining here uh, as she anoints Jesus' feet. Not at all. No, she's a transformed woman, and it's out of this inward transformation. More, I might say, it's out of gratitude of this inward transformation that is motivating Mary uh, to do uh, this thing. So she is driven. I could put it this way. She's driven by deep, loving gratitude for who Jesus is and what he has done. And we should ask ourselves this question. As we go through the week, do we offer service to Jesus? And if the answer is yes, what is motivating us to offer that service to Jesus? Is it this sense of deep, heartfelt, loving gratitude for what he has done? I pray that it is. I pray that it is. Now, the second thing I'll point out here is that Mary doesn't spare any cost. She doesn't spare any cost. You know, I, I heard years ago uh, Alistair Begg say this. He said, salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything. Someone say, salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything. How do we make sense of that? Well, Jesus' services to Mary in coming into her life and Jesus' services to Mary in coming in and winning her heart was all free of charge. But the transformation that took place in Jesus winning her heart motivated her to let go of everything, didn't it? I mean, this perfume, is this, is this the cheap stuff that she brings out? Is this the stuff that someone gave her years ago for a Christmas present at the workplace that you know what I'm talking about? Was it that? No, we're told that in verse 5, Judas, who's a bean counter, he understands, he sees everything through the lenses of money and what things are worth. He's, he's, he appraises this at 300 denarii, and some of you will have footnotes that say that 300 denarii is a year's wages for a day laborer. I happen to look up and Google what the average day laborer in the United States makes. If we want to just go by day laborer, um, he or she makes on the average in the United States, according to 2019, $16 an hour. And if you just do the simple math, assuming that um, they are working 40 hours a week, 52 weeks of the year, that's about 33000 a year. So in this little um, glass or porcelain or whatever, this, this alabaster flask, if you will, there's about $33,000 worth of uh, liquid in there. 
this is expensive. And I've been saying that uh, Martha and Mary are, are undoubtedly uh, folks of means. Uh, this isn't something that the average family would even have access to. Uh, it's not how they would spend $33,000. But the point here in our text is that she spares no cost. She spares no cost. I have a quote here that's beautiful from a man named Alexander McLaren. Is anybody familiar with Alexander McLaren? He was a Scottish pastor. He wrote a lot of commentaries. His commentaries can be really interesting. Um, He says that, uh, commenting on this, he says, quote, true love is profuse, not to say prodigal. Now, what does he mean by prodigal? We think of the prodigal son spending carelessly and recklessly and freely. Um, He says, true love is profuse, not to say prodigal. It knows no better use for its best than to lavish it on the beloved and can have no higher joy than that. It does not stay to calculate utility as seen by colder eyes. It has even a subtle delight in the very absence of practical results, for the expression of itself is the pure thereby. What a fantastic quote. What is Alexander McLaren saying? He's saying, like, you're, he's basically saying this. You remember when you're dating your sweetie and her birthday rolled around? Um, did you care what her birthday present cost? I mean, did you go about buying her birthday present the way you would go about buying everything else? Would you, did you go about it by being really frugal, looking for the best bargain, looking at all of the, <laughs> looking at all the specifications and comparing everything and trying to make the best bang for the buck? Is that the way you went about it? I hope not. I hope not. Because this is, what, this is what McLaren means by calculating utility. Uh, that's seen by colder eyes. Now, I, I can tell you that when, when Tammy's birthday gets near, I don't want to embarrass her, but when she gets near, when it's a month out or six weeks out, if we're somewhere and she sees something, I always say, your birthday's coming. Your birthday's coming. Get it. You got a birthday coming. What's, what's that all about? I don't care what it costs. We got the money to afford it. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you really care? No. What you're invested in, what you're invested in is giving that gift. What you're invested in is seeing that they have this thing that they so delight in. You love lets go, doesn't it? It just lets go. It just says, you know, I'm not going to hang on to this one. I've got something so more precious right here. It just lets go. And that's what we see Mary doing. She just lets go. This is the best that she has. I think that if she would have had 16 ounces of this stuff, I'm told and the scholars tell us that she had like 11 ounces and some change or three quarters of a pound. You read through the commentaries and a lot of the commentaries go into where this stuff come from and it's extracted from some root and that's where my mind starts to think about changing the oil in my car instead of... um, Instead of studying the Word of God, I don't think you... I don't want to do that to you. I certainly don't want you thinking about changing oil, especially ladies. If I'm driving you to think about changing your oil, something really is wrong going on in the pulpit here. Um, But I think if she had had two gallons of this stuff, I think she'd have dumped it all on his feet. 
The other gospel writers say she anointed his head. They're reclining at table, which means they're, they're laying down. That's the way they ate. It would have been very easy to actually just pour this stuff all over Jesus' entire body, which I think is what's happening. I think there's so much of it on him um, that it's running everywhere. She spares no cost. She's driven by deep loving gratitude. She spares no cost. She shuns fear. That's the third thing I want to point out about this. She shuns fear, or shuns fear, if you will. Say that real fast, three times in a row. She shuns fear. She shuns fear. She shuns fear. It can be done. It takes some concentration, but it can be done. What fear would she be shunning? Well, go back to verse 57. The chief priests have a bounty out on Jesus. And what's kind of comical, if you will, is while the chief priests have a bounty out on Jesus, there's a party going on in Bethany in his honor. He's not in the bushes. He's at a table. And $33,000 worth of perfumes being dumped all over him. It's, there's this aspect of that. You see what control the Lord has of all of this? There's, a, there's, a, uh, uh, there's an aspect of that that's kind of humorous in this one respect, but there's another aspect about it that is, uh, what is, what is Mary doing? Does she understand all of it? I don't think. But Jesus actually is being anointed for burial is what he's being anointed. That's what's going on here. Uh, he's being anointed for burial. But we can say that Mary, in fact, the rest of them are all shunning fear. I mean, they're, uh, this is in the eyes of the Pharisees and chief priests, this is a very unlawful thing that's taking place here. I think it would probably bring some negative implications to uh, the entire bunch if they were discovered. But fourthly, she didn't care what anyone thought. You notice that not only did she pour this ointment on Jesus' feet, but she wiped his feet with her hair. And that required her to do something that you didn't do in this culture. That's let your hair down. She let her hair down. Now, anybody that takes this and goes in a sinful direction for this is really off track here. How can we say that? Because Jesus commends what she does. In fact, Jesus and the other, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus so commends her that he promises that every time the gospel, wherever the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told about her. And here we are 2,000 years later, and what are we doing? You know, when Jesus says something, it's for real, isn't it? But she lets her hair down. What do people think about women that let her hair down like this? What are they going to say? It's almost like she doesn't deliberate. I, I have to wipe his feet, I, but I'm going to need to let my hair down. So she's, not, she's, let, she's let go of that. She's completely let go of that. She didn't care what others thought. If you, if you turn, I would ask you to turn here. This is a verse I meditate on a lot. Over the years, I've meditated on this verse an awful lot. Chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus asks this question. Chapter 5, verse 44. Just give you a moment to find it. I think it's important. It's a question, profound question. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer. You can't. When we think about how often we're so more concerned about what the guy next to us thinks, maybe about our singing, than what God thinks about our singing. How often have we not sung because we're so worried someone will hear us? And we've just stood here. What about what God thinks? What's He thinking? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here we see Mary. She's let go of that. Back to chapter 12, verse 3. She wipes his feet with her hair. And that brings to another consideration as she carries this out in humility. Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. You notice one commentator brought this out. And I hadn't thought about it until he did. But as soon as he did, I was like, <laughs> It's really something. Do you realize that every time in the New Testament Mary's mentioned, she's at Jesus' feet? I hadn't thought about that. She's mentioned in Luke chapter 10, she's at the feet of Jesus receiving instruction. In chapter 11, she falls down at Jesus' feet in grief over Lazarus. She falls down in dependence upon him. And here in chapter 12, she's at his feet again, uh, wiping his feet with her hair. Um, John the Baptist said that he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Here she is wiping his feet with her hair. This is an act of profound, profound humility. Um, That same commentary that points out that Mary is always at Jesus' feet, he says this, and this is really helpful. He says, the feet of Jesus is where the service of him begins. The feet of Jesus is where the service of him begins. How profound is that? How profound. Now, there's a sinister thing going on here. You know, um, when an act of devotion like this is carried out, driven by deep loving gratitude, sparing no cost, shunning fear, not caring what others think, in deep humility, the enemies of Christ are going to resist that. Uh, there's always going to be some resistance, and we have that resistance in our story. Judas Iscariot, who's one of the, one of the gospel preachers in Jesus' band of traveling itinerant preachers, he asks in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 tells us that he didn't care about the poor, but he liked to help himself to the money bag. Um, do you realize that this week, within a few days, um, Judas is going to betray Jesus for about a third of the cost of that perfume? He's going to betray Jesus for approximately 11 grand in today's currency. Um, there we see the danger of sin, don't we? And, and more specifically, we see the danger of loving something else more than Jesus. Some might, we might sit here and think, well, oh, Ben, man, I'm so glad that I don't love money like that. Well, let's think about the other things God has given us. Because money isn't the only thing that can tangle us up like that, is it? We can love our careers more than we love Jesus. We can love our children more than we love Jesus. 
We can love our grandchildren more than we love Jesus. What do we, and we ask ourselves, wait a second, do I love my kids more than I love Jesus? Well, what do you go on about the most? What are you always going on about? Are you always going on about Jesus? Or are you always going on about kids or career or grandkids? Or what is it you're always going on about? That is what you love. These are really hard examining questions, aren't they? Well, someone, wait a second, how am I? Jesus, Jesus actually commands our hearts to their entirety. Um, he commands our hearts to their entirety. Here we see the danger of giving our hearts to something else. What has Judas done? He has continually given his, hearts, his heart to money, and he has sown that and sown that and sown that and sown that for the last three years to the point that he chooses $11,000 over Jesus. And where does it bring him? Brings him to ruin, doesn't it? We must examine our hearts. We must examine our hearts. And we must do it the way David teaches us to do it. Lord, search us and know us and reveal to us our hidden faults. Now, that'd be a horrible place to end, wouldn't it? You guys want to close in prayer now? <laughs> how, about we, how about we make one more move here? And that is the significance of our love offering to Jesus. What do you mean by that, Rick? The significance of our love offering to Jesus. Notice back in verse 3, there's a, there's a sentence there. In the ESV, it's a sentence that says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How lovely. I mean, this isn't, uh, this isn't that cheap bargain stuff, you know, that don't get that on me or I'm going to smack you. This is some $33,000 stuff here. What do you suppose that smells like? It's permeating the entire room. It fills the whole house. Mary's act of devotion carries a long-lasting and widespread effect insofar as it, it, it carries through the whole house, doesn't it? It goes beyond what... She's looking at his feet. She's only thinking about his feet, but she is anointing his feet. What is happening? The fragrance of this act of devotion is actually spreading. It's actually spreading wide, and it's spreading long. Now, could it be wrong to suggest that our love offerings to Jesus possess significance that go beyond our intentions or imaginations? Do you understand what I mean by that? Could it be wrong to suggest that our love offerings to Jesus possess significance that go beyond our intentions or imaginations? I'm going to answer absolutely, and you can count on it, positively so. Some will say, well, oh, I don't have any perfume. I don't have any. I, I can tell you right now, uh, Tammy has never asked for $33,000 perfume. You know, she's quite frugal. You know her. She's very frugal. Um, we don't have perfume, do we? We don't have any nard to pour over Jesus' feet, but what do we have? We have hearts to lay there. We don't have nard to pour over his feet, but we have lives to lay down there. And let us be well aware that there's a beautiful fragrance that spreads throughout when this devotion is put forth. I have a note here. It's the fragrance of mercy given and mercy received. 
It's the fragrance of mercy given and mercy received. I could put it the whole quote. Let's be well aware. There's a beautiful fragrance that spreads throughout when this devotion is put forth. It's the fragrance of mercy given and mercy received. In micro, and don't dismiss this. I say only in micro in comparison to this act that takes place here. This act that takes place here cannot be repeated. This is descriptive. It cannot be repeated. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's not going to go to the cross again. But we have the opportunity to do this every Lord's Day when we come up those steps. Because I was thinking of applications of this. I was thinking, well, how, you know, uh, church attendance uh, right now is a problem uh, in, in many churches. And one of the reasons for it is the technology. It's, you know, having gone through the COVID, you'd think having gone through the COVID thing that the last thing anybody would want to do is make use of the technology instead of coming to worship. But unfortunately, there's a problem where people are just kicking their feet up and making use of the camera instead of coming to worship. And the problem with that is it doesn't, people don't understand just what's involved in worship. They don't understand how much of a role that we play when each one of us comes up the steps. I can tell you right now, uh, as your pastor, there's always, some of us are missing this morning, and, there's, there, and I'm, not, I'm not pointing at them. I'm not pointing at anybody. I don't want anybody to look, who's missing? Who's he talking about? No, I'm making a general statement here that when someone's missing, there's all kinds of reasons for us to be missing. We could be working. We could be on vacation. We could be shut in. There's a lot of reasons for us to be missing. But I want to say that when we're missing, it affects us, doesn't it? Why? Well, if we're coming here for the right reason, we're coming here to bring our hearts, to lay them, to pour them, if you will, over Jesus' feet. That's the right reason to come here, isn't it? It's an act of devotion. It's an act of worship. Uh, we come here to worship the Lord. We come here as an act of devotion to worship the Lord. And as, here's, the, here's the beautiful thing is as each one of us does this, fragrance fills the room. So I never thought of worship that way. I know. It's my fault. I've never, show, I've never showed you. I'll, I'll take the blame for that. But I'm showing you now. In fact, some of this I've never seen until this week myself. I still take the blame for never showing you. One thing I have understood is that there is a deficit when any single one of us are missing because we have not been created to be apart. We have been created to be together. And God is bringing this thing to a point when there will never be one of us apart. And too long for that point to come is of consequence to feel the deficit now when one of us is missing. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
a consequence of being part of a loving family. It's a family that we've got here. And when there's a seat missing at the table, well, there's a longing in our hearts, isn't there? Now, let me flip this around the other way. When we're thinking about, or if we're ever tempted to stay home and watch on YouTube or just stay home, let us be mindful that it doesn't just affect us. It affects the rest of the group. And I'm not saying this because I think we have this massive problem. I don't want you to believe a preacher that thinks we don't come to church enough. You know, I don't want you to think that. It's an application that I'm making here. And it's an application that needs to be made. I don't want us to fall susceptible. There are, there are a lot of churches that are really suffering right now from the cameras to the point that a lot of people are thinking about turning the cameras off. And I think some have. I, you know, the camera is really important for a couple of reasons. One, it's important because if you're at home taking chemo treatments, then you need to be in front of the camera. You need to be on the business end of the, or the other end of that camera because it's not safe for you to be around a bunch of people. We have one in our midst who's at home, probably watching right now. She needs our prayers. She's taking chemo. That's a good use of the camera. Some who have whatever health problems, if you will, that's a good use of the camera. If, we're, if we have to work on a given Sunday, uh, we can come back and look at the recording. That's a great use of the camera. If we're looking for a church, people can, can log on and kind of see what we're all about. Uh, that's a good use for the camera. We hope that the camera is used for outreach, uh, hoping that my mug doesn't scare too many. What do they used to say about some of those pictures? That, well, never mind about those pictures. Um, but these are good uses of the camera, and um, having um, listened and heard uh, comments, you know, from so many congregations, uh, I just thought this would be a good um, application of our text here. But um, in, in closing, uh, I'll close with uh, a quote from Matthew Henry. Ma Matthew Henry writes, um, commenting on verse 3 of Mary anointing Jesus' feet. He says these, these words. He says, God's anointed should be our anointed. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, and we praise you, Father, for coming into our lives. Well, Father, before we ever... Um, trusted in you savingly, you had first come into our lives. We thank you for your teaching, O oh Lord. You, you come into our lives and you teach, and we thank you, Father, because before we ever trusted in you, made a, you made a profound impact on our hearts. And we thank you, O oh Father, for the life that we have in Christ Jesus, because before we ever trusted in you savingly, you raised our souls from spiritual death. And, O oh Father, as we begin to take inventory of all of these things with eyes that are now open and ears that are open. Oh, Father, may this motivate us, oh, Lord. May this motivate us, oh, Father, this gospel motivation that wells within these rivers of water welling up to eternal life. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would continually uh, pour, oh, Father, into our hearts uh, your love, Continue to pour into our hearts, O oh Father, appreciation 
and inventory for what you have done, O Lord. Continue to pour in our hearts, O Father, uh, these wondrous things, Father, that we may find ourselves increasingly motivated, O Father, to offer these acts of devotion for what you have done. Father, worship is just one application among so many. That as we go forth from this place, O Father, that everything that we do, uh, O Lord, will have the fragrance uh, of uh, this anointing, the anointing of a a heart that's motivated by you to do uh, these acts of devotion. And may its fragrance, O Father, spread everywhere for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.